Good morning. People are commenting on my, uh, my preacher outfit I've got on this morning. This is not how I normally dress for work, I can assure you. Um, uh, but one of the things that uh, well, us ministers, we have job security, and, um, and we have the privilege to uh, keep before us the issues of life and death, because today I have a funeral. This is my funeral uh, preaching outfit, and I always tell folks, if you can't... Uh, Get excited as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to proclaim that gospel hope of resurrection at a funeral, then you're in the wrong business. And so um, we ministers, we love doing weddings, uh, we, we love doing funerals because it reminds us of that gospel hope of resurrection. Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. You've got most of that... Uh, scripture there uh, on your front and back of your notes, and I've given you a little bit of an outline, and we want today to look at uh, sort of the pervasive problem of uh, prejudice, of discrimination, uh, the word used in our text, partiality. Some of your versions may have favoritism, and you can be sure when you come to a passage like this, this is much like how you come to the law of God, uh, uh, Exodus 20, when you come to any portion of Scripture that is full of commandments. I always tell people, think of Swiss cheese. It's going to show you all the holes in your life, in your attitudes, in your words, in your thoughts. And rather than sit there and wallow in guilt and shame about how you have not measured up, it is important at that moment to run to Jesus, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. And uh, today I want us just to look at James 2, and we're going to look at the pervasive problem of partiality. I'll use the word in our ESV text. And then we're going to look at uh, the, the antidote the powerful antidote. And uh, really, this is where we're just going to just hit four basic points, and that'll be the main part of our, of our lesson today. But let's just look into the text of James chapter 2. And you guys know that the book of James is sort of like the Proverbs of, of the New Testament. Uh, a lot of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of the Proverbs are sort of suffused uh, throughout this book. And I don't know how Sandy has described this book, but for me, if I had to summarize what this book is about, is the gospel of Jesus Christ in action. That uh, it's not just a creed uh, that just informs your mind, but it's a conduct. It translates into action and into life. Well, let's read James chapter 2, 1 to 3, 13, and then we'll jump in. My brothers, show no partiality. Your, word, your version may have favoritism. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and literally it says, and we're going to hammer this, the glory, the glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, the preacher suit, and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved 
brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, what is that? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder harbor malice and anger in your heart. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And just like a good preacher, he, now James answers the question, so what? Verse 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs. Mercy exalts over judgment. This is God's word. Well, while Mahatma Gandhi was a student in England, you know Mahatma Gandhi of uh, Indian fame, this Indian guru, this uh, famous uh, religious and political leader from the country of India. He uh, spent some time in his studies in the country of England. And he was considering becoming a Christian. In fact, he had read the Gospels of Jesus Christ, and he had been moved by those Gospels. And it seemed to him that maybe, just maybe, Christianity had the cure for all that ailed the caste system in the country of India. Well, one Sunday, Mahatma Gandhi decided to muster up his courage and go to a church. He decided to uh, ask the pastor for some instruction on what do Christians say is the way of salvation. But when he entered the church, which consisted of only white people, the ushers refused to give him a seat. They told him to go and worship with his own people. And he left And he never went back. And he said, if Christians, if they have a caste system as well, I might as well remain a Hindu. And my friends, that moment in history is a tragic moment. But it not only has happened many, many times for Mahatma Gandhi's of the world, but it's happened even among us. Visiting with a couple not long ago who was testifying of coming into a church, a large church, and no one, no one spoke to them. They never went back. So friends, one of the things I will tell you is that this problem that James is dealing with, the problem of discrimination, the problem of prejudice, the problem of Tilting our face above others, looking down upon others who are different than we are, has no place in Christianity. And it has no place in our lives personally, and it has no place in the church. Making distinctions based upon 
externals. Now, we'll talk about uh, some of the specifics of this as we go along, but uh, let me just give you uh, what I sort of consider the thesis uh, of James 2, 1 to 13. Genuine faith in Jesus Christ transforms. It transforms us in so many ways, but it transforms proud and prejudiced people like us into loving, humble servants of Christ. That is one foundational way that the gospel begins to do its explosive work in our hearts. And I cannot but think of another man who lived in India, Rudyard Kipling. And he was writing one day, you know, you remember the Jungle Book, right? Um, The Bare Necessities. Uh, Well, he's... uh, he, he was writing about the, the parable of the prodigal son. You know, and you guys know when you read Luke 15 who the real prodigal is. Prodigal means lavish and unrestrained. The father, the father is the prodigal one. He's lavish and unrestrained. And you think of all the ways, and I want to, I'm not going to let you off the hook easy this morning. Uh, think of all the ways that I have lingering racism in my heart all the ways that I show prejudice, all the ways that I feel superior to other people. My friends, the prodigal father is here. He's ready to wrap his arms around us and not wag the finger at us, but to welcome us. He's the impartial one, and he is lavish and unrestrained in his love for men like us, men who don't have it all together, men who who acknowledge, hey, guilty, I'm raising both hands, and I want to just uh, encourage you today. How many prodigal sons who've been wandering in the far country were turned away on their return to the father's house because they met an elder brother? One making distinctions, one looking down his long nose at the one who had fallen short. Well, this morning, let's talk just a bit uh, about the pervasive problem. Yeah, before we can look to the cure, we've got to go, know the depth of our need. So, uh, if you will, let's just look right into verse 1. A most pervasive problem, and we'll see why that is. But the definition, the definition of partiality. Yeah, the, verse 1 says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Well, literally, this if you go and you look this word up in the original Greek language, I mean, it is a mother load of a word. I mean, it's like a, a German word. It's, it's long. It's, it's a compound word, and it, it, it uh, means to lift up your face. So the picture is... And you've seen this before, you know, you've done this before, of just looking kind of proud down upon other people. This is the essence of pride. And as C.S. Lewis reminds us in his book, Mere Christianity, when proud people are looking down their nose at other people, they can't look up and see someone that is above them, the Lord of glory. So it means to lift up our face above others. It means that we look and we we gauge people and evaluate people based upon externals, their appearance, their face, literally, Uh, their their wealth, 
so many other things. Here, obviously, in James' day, uh, we're talking about economic, socioeconomic partiality and prejudice of the rich and the poor. Well, the idea there, and some of your versions have favoritism, is uh, a favoritism is extending special favor to some because of their status. And here's the purpose. It's for self-serving purposes. I, I was thinking about this. Um, some of you know that I, I went to uh, the University of North Carolina. And I was there back in the glory days of North Carolina basketball. And, uh, you know, we all deal with feelings of insecurity. And uh, one of the ways that we can validate ourselves is we can name drop. You know, and one of the ways I used to do this a lot, and, you know, and I'm just sharing the stories so you can identify is, uh, hey, I used to live on the dorm floor and play basketball with, well, you know who, MJ, Michael Jordan. And just, we, we, we love to, to sort of name drop of people that are status. Now, Michael Jordan wasn't near the basketball player at North Carolina that he was with the Chicago Bulls. Um, but we have respect for people based upon externals. And this is the essence of this Sin of partiality. The, the way that the, the, another way to describe it is that we're respecters of persons, respecters of persons. And I don't know if you guys who have have young kids. One of the things that I've preached to my son, uh, in particular, I haven't said this to my daughters. So, and we can say this stuff here in a group of men. Son, those people. Whoever those people are, whatever position they have out there in society, they put their undies on the same way you put your undies on. And so uh, one of the things we have to do here is remind ourselves that we look to so many other things to establish a sense of identity and importance that's external. And we become respecters of people and we show uh, prejudice and uh, partiality. And uh, he just calls it just flat out a sin. And then he moves right here in in verses 2 and 3 to a portrait, to one specific portrait of this sin. It says, a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and we pay attention to the one who's rich, and we neglect the man who is poor. So let's just uh, do a little assessment of our hearts here. We want to just briefly look at James' day, and then we want to look, how does this flesh out in our lives Today, and I just want to hit on a few. Uh, in James' day, obviously, economic partiality, uh, economic, uh, socioeconomic prejudice. It's between rich and poor. And, and even back in James 1 9 to 11, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he too will pass away. So one of the things that's really important here in James 2, there's a lot of talk in our day about the issue of social justice. This would be a great passage to sort of uh, just look and, and, and set forth the theology of justice. That those who are in the majority culture have to look out for those who are the minorities. And, and, and in many ways we don't even get this. And, uh, and those of us, many of many whom have been entrusted with a lot of, of the things of this world, that here this passage calls us all to, to ask God to give us a heart for the poor and the under-resourced in our community. 
There's, there's economic partiality. Secondly, in James' day, one of the big things that was threatening just to disrupt the unity of the church was religious and ethnic uh, partiality. This would be between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles. In fact, the book of Romans was written to try to bring about unity in the church of Rome between Messianic Jews, Jews who had come to faith in Jesus, and the Gentiles. And so, um, in fact, one of the things, and I would just encourage you, so often we come into our brothers' lives and we rebuke them or challenge them about incidental things. Can I, can I ask you a question? Has anyone ever come into your life, a brother, and, and challenged you and rebuked you because your thinking or your acting was not in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I would encourage you to go to James chapter 2. You don't have to turn there now, but... What does the Apostle Paul does that to Peter? They're at Antioch, and he's, he's hanging out with the lowlifes, with the Gentile believers. But when the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem show up, what does Peter do? He withdraws. He withdraws. And Paul, Paul called him a hypocrite. And Paul challenged him. Why did he challenge him? Because your conduct is not in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And another way to put that in shoe leather, the ground is level at the foot of of the cross. So I would just encourage you to think about that because we still have that today. Uh, in our day, uh, these are just some, some ideas for you to consider. How about in your own family? You might even walk with a limp because favoritism was shown in your family. You were the black sheep of the family. And one of the things I, uh, I would just encourage you is you go back and you read the life of Joseph uh, in the Old Testament, Genesis 37 to 50. He, um, he was a wonderful man, but he, there was a lot of brokenness in that family because Jacob showed favoritism to one son. Just would encourage you, I, I, I've just been thinking about this a little bit in the short time I've had to study on this this week, but even just with our own families. Uh, how about racial Racial prejudice and racial partiality between people of different ethnic ethnicities where we can feel ourselves superior and we can have um, really ungodly attitudes. In fact, I've had one couple I've, in a small group I lead here that's been challenged by Michael Davis, one of our, our pastors here at Second, uh, to uh, just all of some of the attitudes that they just sort of absorb growing up and that they're about maybe four blocks from an under-resourced neighborhood, and they've got a little boy, and they're, they're hey, we're going to go play on that playground, and, and we're, we're going to change this. We're going to do something about this ethnic prejudice that is still lingering in our hearts. And I would just challenge you to think about that. Uh, obviously, in our day, uh, uh, sexism and, and gender issues are really, really big and really, really complicated. And uh, you want to know how I know that, that sexism and bias toward women reside still in my heart? When I'm riding in the right lane on Poplar, and when somebody does something stupid, you know, hey, I got driving righteousness and I've got national jurisdiction. Who do I say is driving the car before I know? Guilty. Guilty. What is that crazy woman doing? And then I drive by and it's a man. 
you know? We make distinctions. We make distinctions. How about faith uh, and denominations and how easy it is to, uh, to think that we're superior? The pride of grace is one of the most sinister forms of pride. To think that we have the corner on the market and that we are some of God's top people. Isn't the Lord blessed to have us? Oh, let's just go a little bit further. I'm going to go to meddling now, okay? How about worship style preferences? Oh, my goodness, the church. We always joke when the devil fell out of heaven, uh, Lucifer, the angel who was responsible to guard the holiness of God, where did he fall? He fell into the choir loft. And friends, what is meant to unify the church is so divisive. The contemporaneous. They need the traditionalists, and the traditionalists need the contemporaneists. And would, when you get into those debates with your brothers, can I give you one verse to think about? Romans 12, 10. Give preference to one another in honor. Would that the traditionalists say, you know, are the young students that are coming from Memphis that are in our church, uh, are, are are they being ministered to in, in our worship services? Are they, are they being nourished in their faith by the music that we're singing? Would that the contemporaries that love the guitars, that love all of that, would say, you know what? How about our fathers? The fathers in Israel. How, are they getting what they need to, to walk with God? Is this music ministering to them? Give preference to one another in honor. Well, there's one last one. And boy, this can, I've seen this absolutely blow up a church. Schooling preferences. How do you school your children? Well, public school is the only way to go. Homeschooling, if you really love your kids, you'll homeschool them. There's a church just a little bit south of us (laughs) that got just blown apart because people making distinctions among themselves other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, all the little examples I've given you, this is a chief tactic of the devil to sow the seeds of dissension among us. And if you'll remember uh, Screw Tape, uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, little book on how the senior devil, Wormwood, teaches a younger devil to tempt Christians. And you know what the strategy is? The Christ and syndrome, Christ and fill in the blank, Christ and the Republican Party, the Democratic Party will save America, Christ and Reformed theology equals a healthy Christian, Christ and um, public schooling, Christ and, the point is it doesn't matter what comes after the conjunction. Just dilute the focus off of Jesus, the glorious one. Take the spotlight off of him. It doesn't matter what you use. And so one of the things we have to be very careful, this is such a pervasive problem, what are we looking to other than Jesus that is distracting us from the beauty of our Lord? Well, the problem with partiality is that in verse 4 it says, and this is C, the problem with partiality is, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, the evil thoughts, the evil motives is, 
I'm looking at all of my relationships at work, at home, everywhere I am from a self-centered perspective. And I view people for what they can do for me. That is the, that is the evil thoughts. It, portray, it betrays our loyalty to Jesus. It breaks down Christian community. It causes us to evaluate every relationship in terms of personal profit or personal loss. So one of the things you need to see here, self-serving relationships is at the core of showing partiality. So one of the things I want to just encourage you to think about What is God calling us to do? He's calling us to become a community of love where we move out into other people's lives to bring healing and hope and encouragement. Well, let's look now at the powerful antidote. The powerful antidote. And and if you want to just, everything I'm about to say, I'll give it to you in four little phrases here. God's son, God's grace, God's law, God's mercy. God's son, now this, I don't even think this is anywhere up here, so uh, uh, the, the, the first point here is to embrace Jesus Christ for who he really is. Embrace Jesus Christ for who he really is. No matter what your skin color, no matter what your socioeconomic level, no matter what your job, no matter your your marital status, single, married. If you're here today and you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior of sinners like us, then you have faith. We have the same faith in the same Lord. And so what's this idea here in verse 1 where it says, Hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. When I first read it, I read it just like it's written. Holding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, the glory. What's up with that? We know that uh, from 1 Corinthians 2, 8, that if the rulers of of this world, of this age, during the time of Jesus Christ, they would have never crucified him if they would have recognized who he was. He was the Lord of glory, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 8. He's the splendor of God's presence. He's the glory of God's people, Israel, Luke chapter 2. He reflects the glory of God, Hebrews chapter 1. And this is the way I like to think about James 2 verse 1. Jesus Christ, the face to meet all other faces. The face to meet all other faces. Have you seen that face? Have you beheld that face? If you're like the, like the Apostle Peter in Luke 5, when he first saw Jesus for who he was in all of his transcendent glory by that sea with a catch of fish, what did Peter say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. When the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, a 95-year-old man in a concentration camp, when he, when he encountered the transcendent glory of the living Christ in Revelation chapter 1, what did he do? He fell down at his feet like a dead man. He was mesmerized. He was stunned by the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me uh, just give you something. Um, Earl Palmer wrote a book called The Book That James Wrote. And I've got a, a few little quotes in here. I, I want to just make sure I get this exactly right. It's right. It should be in your notes. 
It starts, because of the grandeur of the true glory of Jesus Christ, how can we hold our faces? How can we hold our faces above those around us? Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, we are to reject the kinds of pretense and discrimination towards other people that depend on a working theory of our own personal superiority. Because of His glory, we are able to relax. I don't have to impress you with my own glory. This becomes for us a reason for humility and an altogether healthy antidote to pretentiousness or discrimination towards others. I know one who deserves all the glory. So my head, my head and my gaze is not turned by the lesser luminosities of this world. Have you seen this face? Have you seen this face? The face of Jesus, there's, according to Isaiah 53, there's nothing physically in Jesus Christ with that physical beauty that would cause us to be drawn to him. He was despised and rejected. His beard was pulled out. The crown of thorns placed on his brow. And I want to just uh, encourage you with uh, Augustine. I love uh, Augustine, a pastor in northern Africa. Uh, back in the 4th and 5th century, a man who struggled with taming the lion of lust in his life. Listen to what he says. In my deepest woundedness, I saw your glory and it dazzled me. Have you seen that glory? Would you, would you pray today? This is what I pray for my kids. Look out and I see all the seductions of this world that are coming for their hearts. And I go to Ann Steele, who was a, a, a daughter of an English Baptist back in the 1700s. Lord, unveil your beauty. Unveil your beauty to their sight so that they might love you more because if you don't unveil your beauty, your glory to them, they're going to give their hearts affections to other loves, to other beauties, and it will break their heart. It will bring bondage and heartache. So would you pray that for yourself? Lord, Unveil your glory, unveil your beauty to me and to those that I love so that I might love you more. Well, secondly, embrace Jesus Christ for who he is. He's the glorious one. Number two, cherish, cherish a grateful humility for God's grace. Not only do we have the same faith and the same glorious Lord, but we have experienced the same grace. Now, I want you to look in uh, verse 5 to 7. Now, I'm not making these things up. I'm not just a Presbyterian trying to grind my axe. But let's just look into the text and see what it says. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So my friends, one of the things I want you to see today is um, the beauty of sovereign, saving grace. How is it, if you profess allegiance to Jesus Christ today, how is it that you came to faith? 
you probably heard a preacher. You were in a, uh, in a, in a Billy Graham uh, crusade or you were reading your Bible and, and the Holy Spirit of God convicted you. And he did for you what he did for Lydia long ago in Acts 16. What did he do for Lydia? He opened her heart. He opened her heart to believe. Now, I did something once, and it was just, it was underhanded. But I was trying to get a point across, so I found this pretty toehead blonde little girl, and she's kind of chunky, but she had some pipes. The little girl could sing. I put her before the congregation. I think we were teaching on Romans chapter 8. And I had this little girl sing a song. It's a song I grew up singing. I still love this song. It needs to be tweaked a little bit, and I had her tweak it. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. He rescued me. He rescued me. This is the powerful tonic of grace. It takes us off of our high horse by which we evaluate other people and their significance in our lives. We're all saved the same way. It is saving sovereign grace. What does God choose us for? We did not choose Him, Jesus said in John 15, 16. He chose us. And this is not something to go around clubbing people over the head with. But what it is, is something to dissolve your heart. Because if God saves you by His grace from beginning to end, then today, no matter what's going on in your business, no matter what's going on in your marriage, you ought to be one of the most joyful, grateful, and humble people. He's given, I'm, I'm rich in faith. I've... I'm a recipient of the everlasting, peaceable kingdom. Jesus Christ right now is preparing for you and me a place in His everlasting kingdom. And at the end, we have a picture of what happens. Come you who are blessed of the Lord, inherit the kingdom that I've been preparing for you before the foundation of the world. If you look out and you see the splendor of the Rocky Mountains and the mighty Mississippi River, and it just takes your breath away. How much more this kingdom, perfect kingdom, that Jesus has been preparing for us before the foundation of the world. Why is this important? Why is it important to cherish this? Because it forces us to relate to people strictly on the basis of God's grace and not on the basis of human merit and social status. Well, we need to move along. Verses 8 to 11. So you've got God's Son, the glorious one, Jesus Christ. You've got uh, the same grace, God's grace that we cherish. And number three, you've got God's royal law. And here's what I want you to think about because so many folks say, you know, well, man, I'm a New Testament Christian. Aren't we done with the law? Didn't Jesus fulfill the law? Yes, He did fulfill the law. But the law is a guide 
a guide for our lives, the moral law. And we see it how, how, how the Apostle James uses the law in our lives. And this is what I want to challenge you to do. When you pick up the book and you read Exodus 20, my daughter who lives in China, she was just asking me on, my, on the little text uh, late last night, and I'm, and I'm saying, why on earth are you reading this book of the Bible? But she said, Daddy, can you give me some helpful devotional tools through the book of Leviticus? I said, baby, I, 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 I'm a preacher. I've not made it through Leviticus much myself. Uh, you know, I know God is holy. Uh, that's, well, I, know, I know that's what it teaches. God is holy and, and we who worship him. Uh, we, we, he dictates how we worship him. When you read those books, it is a schoolmaster. It is a schoolmaster. It's, it's guiding you. It's like a whip. It's driving you like cattle. Run to the cross. Run to the cross. See how Jesus fulfilled this. And now with his power and of, of his spirit dwelling within you, you can, you can heed his word. Well, I want to encourage you to use the law at, to plow your heart. To let it plow your heart. I'm thinking of my, of my grand, on my granddaddy's farm back in eastern North Carolina. Uh, the part, hopefully, that's not underwater right now. Um, and remember the, how tough it was to plow those straight lines. The Word of God, God's Spirit uses it to plow our hearts. And when we read it, even right now, there have probably been things, attitudes, and things that you've said and done that the Spirit has convicted you of. What do you do with that? You say... We can blow it off, we can kind of stiff arm, we can do the Heisman maneuver on the Holy Spirit, uh, but we welcome that. Lord, plow my heart and help me to repent, help me to turn and run to Jesus. We've got to learn to preach the gospel to our hearts. No matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, today as a man, as a businessman, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, you, do nev you never get over your need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never. And that's the fundamental thing that you need today is to preach the gospel of Jesus to your heart and root your identity in his love for you. Well, the royal law, it's, it's the law of laws. It's the, it's the Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second table of the moral law. And so I would just encourage you to, to think of this, that instead of sizing one another up, we're called to sacrifice for one another. Instead of maneuvering for the best possible advantage, we give ourselves to one another for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, lastly, we have God's mercy. And I don't know for, about you, but for the life of me, uh, you know, I've been around church for a long time, and you, you hear people talk about God's grace and then God's mercy, and it's like, man, what's up? What's the, and the best way I know to kind of distinguish this is God's grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. You deserve to be cut off from the source of life and love and joy forevermore. Jesus repeatedly calls that hell. You get heaven. You deserve to, to dwell in, in everlasting justice that burns like fire. But you get grace. You deserve to uh, you know, crawl on your knees repentance, but Jesus Christ has supplied for you a lavish banquet. The taste of it is the Lord's Supper. 
But there's a banquet coming when the shroud that has enveloped all the people, according to Isaiah 25, that shroud of death will be destroyed, and you're going to enter into a feast to end all feasts. Jesus calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. Friends, grace is when you receive what you don't deserve. His free gift, His favor. Mercy is when God withholds from you what you rightfully deserve. Always when I, when I think about this, I, I think about the memoirs of Jonathan Edwards. If you know who he is, he's probably the most uh, renowned pastor theologian that was ever produced on the shores of the United States. Died of, uh, of a va- uh, smallpox vaccination at 54 years of age, my age, at Princeton as the president of Princeton College. He was talking to a gentleman troubled about his sins and uh, his, his life outside of Christ and The man said, well, I'm such a filthy, rotten scoundrel of a sinner. I deserve to be in the bottom rung of hell. And Jonathan Edwards proceeded to tell him, he said, my, you've got a high esteem of yourself. (laughs) Uh, If we know the depth of our condition and of our need, deserve should never be in our vocabulary. Deserve should never be in our vocabulary. When you're struggling in your marriage, have you ever had the thought, I deserve better than this? And I'll give you what uh, Steve Brown says at moments like this, the funny preacher from, uh, from Orlando, Florida. He said, that smells like smoke and it's from the pit of hell. I don't deserve. This is the whole nature of mercy. And one of the things, guys, as you think about lingering racism and prejudice in your heart, you think of all the issues that are going on in our broad culture right now, the church has got to rise up. We've got to rise up. And the church in the past, how have we motivated the saints? By guilt. By guilt and by shame. Do you see what the Apostle James is doing? He's motivating us by grace and mercy. This has more sustaining power in our lives. The degree that you've experienced the grace and the mercy of God through our Lord Jesus Christ will be the degree that you share and show that grace and mercy. Today, in your marriage, the degree that you experience the love of Christ for you personally will be the degree that you extend that love to your wife. The degree that you know today how accepted you are in the beloved, Ephesians 1, 7, will be the degree that you move to accept people who are different than you. Well, he says here in the passage, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, the gospel. We see that from uh, James 1, 25. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now, you can tell the, the half-brother of Jesus, James, who's writing the book, he's, he's heard Jesus tell a few parables right there. That little summary statement comes from the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. And he basically says this, we don't show mercy and forgive those people who sin, sin against us and violate us in order to get God's mercy. That would make uh, us extending mercy... Uh, Uh, be a condition in order to receive God's mercy. That's not true. That does not correspond to the scriptures. 
we demonstrate mercy and we forgive people their small debts toward us because we recognize the immense debt. I've got a $17 billion debt and now I'm trying to exact some justice on you and you owe me $17. And that's the nation that says judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Because showing no mercy, not being moved with compassion toward those in need, demonstrates that we don't understand that we've received God's mercy. Well, I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've read any of his books. One of the books that he's written that I can understand, (laughs) he's a smart guy. Uh, He was a German pastor during the Nazis. And he was hung on the gallows just a few days before... uh, uh, the Nazi regime was overturned and, and Europe was liberated. He wrote a book called Life Together. And friends, if you're here today and the church has done a number on you, 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 distinctions have been made, and you're ready to give up on the organized church, and, and you say something that I hear regularly as a pastor, me and Jesus, we got a good thing going, and I don't need y'all. I don't need the church to mess it up. And we succumb to what's called the privatized faith syndrome. And my friends, you can't have God for your father without having the church as your mother. But we've got to be part of the solution. We've got to take up this this call. And part of it is, is seeing Jesus for who he is and be smitten and stunned by his glory and being astonished at his grace and mercy that he's lavished upon us, inviting him to take his word and to plow our hearts and show us all of the unloving ways and attitudes that are still lingering there. Plow it up and out, Lord, and get it out of my life so that I might be a person who loves others well. Let me give you a little, close with a little poem here. It's called Outwitted, and I typically love this poem, and I use it when I'm speaking on the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. He drew a circle and shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle and took him in. But friends, where do you need to be drawing a circle? Where do you need to be drawing others in? What would our churches look like? What would this church look like if we took seriously James chapter 2? This will be uncomfortable. This will get us out of our comfort zone. How about your church? How about you in your life? How would you live differently when you hear something like this The one question, what one way would you live differently if James 2, 1 to 13 was more real in your life? One way. One way that you would live differently. Don't let this morning go by without getting an answer to that question. Um, In your notes, there's there's an old little hymn there. And uh, if you don't know already, I'm, I, 
if I could, I'd sing. I'd sing my sermon. I, I, I think uh, music is God's fair and glorious gift. And um, Christians are the only ones who can sing through their troubles. Sing through their troubles with song. Because I can tell you this, that the devil flees before the sound of music almost as much as the Word of God. Let me pray for us. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray today that you would unveil to our sight the glorious one. Lord, that we would behold Jesus' glory and that beholding that glory, it would come upon us and we would be changed and transformed and we would be marked as people that do not show partiality and make distinctions among us based upon externals. But Lord, that we would be people that draw circles and pull other people into our community, no matter the differences, because the ground is level at the foot of your cross. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.